Welcome to The Balance. I'm Dr. Catlin Tucker, and today my guest is Henry Turner. He is an award-winning high school principal and author. He has written the book, Change the Narrative, How to Foster an Anti-Racist Culture in Your School, and he is a nationally renowned speaker, and I get his newsletter every week, so I was very excited to have him on the podcast to talk about his work. All right. Well, welcome to the show, Henry. I'm going to start this conversation like I always do by just inviting you to tell us a little bit about your journey in education, kind of where did you begin and when did you transition into school leadership and what drew you to that school leadership role? Great. Well, thanks for having me. And it's great to be here. Um, My story begins, I would say, as an educator um, when I was in high school. Um, I was one of the few students of color in my high school and uh, connection was something that I felt like I didn't have, even though I, you know, I had generally a good, um, a good high school experience. And that's what drove me to want to become um, a teacher. And so um, I knew that I wanted to be a teacher, you know, at at 15 years old. Um, And what I wanted was um, to really be a person who um, helped to, um, you know, make uh, a difference in terms of issues like equity and social justice. And those certainly weren't words that I was using then, um, <laughs> but it really was what I was looking for was I wanted to make a difference. I wanted to, um, to address uh, inequities that I, that I experienced and, um, and I want to be a history teacher and I wanted to talk about, um, uh, you know, I wanted to help people to be thinkers and to, and to solve, solve problems. And, and I really was passionate about, um, social justice at the time, you know, I was, a, I was, uh, I founded a multicultural club and I had, um, uh, done a lot of things that around the DEI space then as well. Certainly weren't the words again, we were using then, right. but, um, when I started as a teacher, you know, I really dove in, I, I started working in schools that were, um, as a history teacher that, um, where students of color were not the majority and particularly in suburban schools. And, mm-hmm. Um, and so I could resonate with a lot of the students who were there in terms of their experience. And um, that drove me more and more into, you know, how do we make school a place where kids feel like they belong, where they feel like it's for them, uh, mm-hmm. where they feel like they're seen. And right. certainly I had, I had that experience growing up where I didn't feel seen, even though I had, you know, it was generally accepted in my school. Um, but, but I could see where, you know, just even in the conversations adults were having with kids and um, in ways in which kids didn't go out for uh, parts and plays or clubs because they didn't feel like that was meant for them. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I participated in some different um, faculty and teaching um, committees that really were focused on achievement gaps and opportunity gaps for students. And that fueled my fire mm-hmm. for what school should be like and really fueled my energy for, for leadership. And so um, I was probably like 26 when I realized that uh, leadership is what I wanted to do. I had been. Oh, wow. That was early. Super young, right? Yeah. Yeah. I had been in leadership roles, you know, as captain of teams and I was a head lifeguard in the beach and Cape Cod and all these other things, but I really found the passion for leadership and education probably right around 26 and um, became an administrator, became an assistant principal at 29. And really my drive was 
um, how do we make create more opportunities for students? So I you know had created some programs um, for students around um, uh, you know helping students to take you know honors level classes that may not have never taken honors level class before, particularly mm-hmm. where like black, Hispanic, and low income students were not. Um, were underrepresented in, in those kind of classes. Yep. And then making systems and, and design. And that, but the more I dove into that, the more excited I got about, got into leadership and then became a principal kind of with that kind of passion. That's, I would say, where I am now is working in a school of 2,000 kids. Um, been here for eight years. And, wow. you know, I, that same passion that I had when I was 15 still exists. That's uh, there's wonderful. A lot, there's a lot more knowledge, but mm-hmm. uh, I'm proud of the work that we've done to kind of keep honing in on that that goal of social justice and inequity. Yeah, and I don't. I honestly don't talk to school leaders who are in the same position at the same school doing that work for that long. So often, mm-hmm. I feel like when I talk to teachers or I'm working with leaders, the turnover is so fast, you know, that they're there for maybe three to five years at the most with a lot of the school leaders I've had the pleasure of chatting with. And I feel like for some of these big issues and the kinds of change you're trying to make, it must be such a gift for your school community that you've been there as long as you have to kind of push this work forward. I think it was, I think it's so important that I've, that, that I've been here for a long time and, um, and that my members of my leadership team have been here for long time. So I have 16 other administrators that I work mm-hmm. with in our building that um, I supervise and um, they they do a lot of the work here. And I'm, I'm glad that they have sort of just the, the social capital with mm-hmm. our staff, with our families, with our students to be able to create some of those changes. And, you know, I'd also say that, um, that to your, to your point is that it's just, it is so vital to really understand um, a school before you lead any change. Mm-hmm. And I've worked with schools that um, are, you know, said they, they want to, you know, create equity in their school in a year. That's part of their school improvement plan. And when I ask them, like, how did it work out? They're like, well, we're, we're exhausted. We didn't make any progress. <laughs> yeah. Right? You're not going to solve racism in a year. Um, you're not going to solve injustice in a year in your school. Mm-hmm. You're not going to you're not going to solve the disproportionality in your in your school in a in a year. It's not going to take. It's going to take more than just a few years, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so hard, long problems, and it does take a leader to be there for a long time with a clear vision to to get to that kind of success. I think. Yeah, definitely. So I'm curious because I've had, I remember when I was teaching and uh, people would say, gosh, Catlin, why don't you get your admin credential and become an administrator? And I thought, oh my goodness, it's like all the parts of this work that I don't actually love, you know, the the discipline, the parents, the, the pressure. So I'm curious, like in your role, obviously being a school leader, being in your position for eight years with this particular school, what do you find most rewarding about the position and the work itself and what's most challenging? Hmm. So I, I think that it's, I love working with adults and I think that that's interesting that that was your, your concern because mm-hmm. I know you love working with adults. I um, do. <laughs> in a training capacity, but yeah. like, a, you know, the it's not the teachers on a campus that I think would be challenging. It's more just the other stakeholders and everybody's got their own ideas of what should be happening. And yeah, more the families of 
you know, students and trying to mitigate all that or deal with it would be challenging. Yeah. So I think, I think to me, I think that, you know, everyone has their passion of what school should look like because everyone went to it, right? right. Everyone went. To it. And so um, I would say, you know, what drives me and keeps me excited is um, like, how do we find the common areas where we do agree and how do you create the sense of urgency and passion for other folks and sometimes that challenge is with um, is with our is with our with teachers, and sometimes it's with parents, and sometimes it's with our students. And I would say that one of the areas where um, you know we've made why we've made huge gains um, as a school um, was one of the hardest things to sort of help people to see, which was how do we empower our students? Yeah, um, so that their voice is heard. And um, and so you know my first. Uh, second week on the job is that a group of students drove around waving the Confederate flag um, outside of our school and someone caught it on videotape and posted it to Facebook and it went viral. Wow. Um, she tells you how long ago it was that it was on Facebook and went viral. Right. But, right. Uh, <laughs> but anyway, um, students said to, said to me, I, I was a brand new principal. They said, uh, these were our black students predominantly who said, we don't feel like the school is for us. Um, we don't feel seen here. And so we we supported them in having a, a, a rally in response to that event. Um, and it was their sense of protest. And that was like a radical shift in how we think about student voice. Yeah. It's not just like we're student centered and that we you know want students to you know have different you know options for writing assignments. Like we actually said we if our students are really angry, we want them to be able to, show their anger. Um, and even if it's at us as, as educators, because mm -hmm. that's what's going to bring healing. And it's what's also going to bring strength to our community. Um, and that, you know, I, that took a while to get adults to understand the power of um, getting, uh, of when students are empowered. And I would say like, there were certainly adults who were already bought into that, but it took a while um, for us to, you know, to ultimately see what that looks like in the classroom, mm -hmm. um, what that, you know, why that is a good thing for their children with our families. So I'd say like, that's what keeps me excited as an educator is that change process as a leader. Mm -hmm. I'd say what worries is, um, I'd say that this, you know, can be a very political job. Yeah. Um, and while, you know, I love the relationships, I love having conversations with people, um, you know, there are people who just come with agendas and um, aren't interested in sort of shifting their their mind. Mm -hmm. um, particularly, I'd say in the last few years, that's been the case where, you know, opinions are hardened. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it's not about people willing to have conversations with you. They are hearing what they're hearing and are, um, you know, not going to budge from that. Yeah, no, I feel like social media has made that even more challenging, just the kind of being exposed to other perspectives and points of view and being receptive to having those conversations because so much of school continues to look how it looked when our students' parents were in school and trying to get them on board with change of any kind where school might not look or kind of operate in the exact same way is the amount of pushback that I all the time kind of face and in the kind of important work you're describing that's 
really charged and in an environment of a lot of charged feelings and opinions, I can't imagine how intense that work is. Well, I think I think it's not even it's not even their parents went to school. It's how their grandparents and their great grandparents. I know. I know. It's that long. And so when, you know, we talk about shifting a mindset so that school is for all kids, not just Mm for one kid, um, that really can create fear for folks. And people, um, you know, think about what their high school experience was, where, you know, some kids were kept in certain rooms or were, um, you know, allowed to drop out. Um, And so, you know, now when we talk about things like, you know, we, we think it's good for students when they learn with each other, even mm-hmm. if the students learn, learn differently or have different opinions, it's good for them to learn with each other. And that can, that can be seen as a radical perspective because, you know, a person that they once thought was not um, as smart as their own kid may, you know, why would you put them in the class with my kid? Right. And I mm-hmm. think that's not like a specific example, but it's a more general perspective. I think sometimes our bias does creep up into, and I think, you know, it's, it's important for my job to help people to see that. I think your point around social media is huge. I think most people, most people are getting their news from social media right now. Mm-hmm. Their perspective of schools is not on their local school, but it's about what they think school is like based on what they're seeing on social media. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's interesting being in it, obviously as somebody who utilizes social media to kind of idea share, but then also gets exposed to all the kinds of conversations and narratives about education that I find a little concerning. Um, And you have written a book titled Change the Narrative, How to Foster Anti-Racist Culture in Your School. So I would love for you, obviously, this is right up in line with all the things you've been describing that you love about your work that lights you up. But can you tell us really what inspired you to take that next step as somebody who's written books? I know that that's quite the undertaking. So what inspired you to want to write the book? And, you know, when you think about the the dominant narrative what what is it that you're hoping to change how does the book provide you know schools and leaders and teachers and with the kind of tools they might need or strategies or skills or mindset or whatever to kind of make some of that those shifts happen yeah so thanks for bringing that up I, I, the the reason why we wrote this book was um uh you know we because of this incident that I had talked about um around uh the confederate flag really launched me into a place where um, I was uh, leading change in a school uh, as it relates to uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion. Because mm-hmm. some of the things we started to uncover when students said, um, you know, I don't feel connected or I don't feel like the school is for me, we found that there were there was some data that reinforced that. So mm-hmm. one is that we surveyed and found that we had a connectedness gap between Black and Latinx students and white students and Asian students. Um, we also found that um, in our school at that time, 25% of students were identified for special education when the, our state average was 15%. So we were way over the state average. Mm-hmm. And 50% of our Black students were on an IEP. Oh, wow. Yeah. So we found that, uh, and I always say that there's nothing wrong with having a disability. What's wrong with is um, saying someone has a disability when they don't have a disability. Yeah. And um, and there was a lot of misidentification. There was a lot of bias in our process. Um, and so 
And a lot of people thought they were doing the right thing because this was a way that kids were getting support when they were struggling in school. Mm-hmm. So, um, so I was in this place where we were starting to shift practices. Um, those, you know, understanding our own bias, understanding our racial identity, um, and how that plays a role. Um, how do we shift practices that are more culturally responsive, more um, in line with universal design for learning? Mm-hmm. How do we think about discipline in a way that is uh, more multifaceted and more in line with UDL, so that it's not just about consequences, but about learning. And so all of these different shifts that we were doing over time. So in 2020, when um, George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and, and others were spotlighted, their, their, their murders were spotlighted, there are a lot of educators who are rethinking their practices as it relates to DEI. And a lot of uh, school leaders were reaching out to me because um, I've been doing a lot of writing, podcasts mm-hmm. on it. And I thought it was time to, to see if I could write a book. And so it was definitely an undertaking. It was definitely therapy uh, also mm-hmm. during COVID and all whatnot. But it was, um, I think the purpose of it was to help ed- leaders, regardless of how they see themselves, principals, uh, central office or classroom teachers, that um, uh, there are actual steps that they can take to um to achieve the equity goals that they want, to achieve the diversity goals that they want. And so we give very practical steps. I'm a you know school leader. My co- co-author is a social worker. And mm-hmm. so um, we do a lot of, you know, talk about, a lot about change, but we also do a lot on, you know, what are workshops, what are activities that you can do? Um, you know, how do you supervise people uh, when you're trying to shift this kind of culture? Um, how do you engage parents? How do you support student leaders? So there's a lot of, you know, really pragmatic steps that are small, some are large, um, that, you know, allow for uh, uh, school leaders to think about this. And I'll just say one more thing is that, you know, sometimes I, and particularly now I get asked, like, um, you know, my community is not ready for this. And I always say that there's like really small things that you can do to um, help change the narrative of your school. And the easiest thing that we did at our school was that we use our learning management system and gave students an opportunity to record their voice of how they pronounce their name. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. Students in our student information system, the ability to write their name phonetically. So on day one, uh, teachers can say kids' names correctly. Mm-hmm. And I always say, no one, is, no one go, is going to a school committee meeting complaining about that practice, right? right. And everyone resonate. And it's a lesson that DEI work is good for all kids. And so we talk a lot about those sort of small steps that you can take to allow you to scale it to you know, some of the harder work. Right. Because it has to start somewhere. And that example of pronouncing a student's name correctly can have such a huge impact on them feeling seen and respected as an individual. I've had many conversations with students where they'll come into my class and I will ask them, how do you pronounce your name? And they're like, I literally had even a grad student who's working to become a teacher who had a very like a very complex Chinese name and was going by just an American, like a, a random name. I can't even remember what it was. And I said, you know, it says this on my list, my my enrollment list. I see this in your Zoom. Like, what do you prefer? And the student had just basically 
was using a different name. So it was just easier on teachers. And I, throughout the time we worked together, used his actual name. And at the end of our se- of our semester together, part of what he wrote in his feedback form was just how meaningful the fact that I asked and that I cared enough to figure out what his name, how to pronounce his name. And then I used it the entire semester and had been the only professor to ask and do that for him. It was just like mind boggling to me. Uh, absolutely. And from a leader's perspective, my question is like, well, how do we make sure that all the other professors, you know, utilize some kind of practice? Because it's great that one kid can have one teacher that has, you know, that that they know cares about them. But if we really want to shift culture and we really want yeah. to address disproportionality, we need everyone buying into these kind of practices. Exactly. And if you feel like you're not ready for some of the the steps that you describe in the book, it's like I love that there it's like this on ramp of like, well, let's get you ready. And here are very concrete things you can do as a school, as leaders, as teacher leaders to start kind of putting some of this this foundation in place so that then we can build because the we're not there yet kind of conversation. It always just makes me nervous of like, okay, then what are we doing to get to where we can start this really important work? Yeah, no doubt. And I actually think that um, we can do more harm when we try to do the bigger things first. Yeah. Um, and so one thing we talk about in the book is um, using the cycle of inquiry to, to constantly be checking ourselves because that's how we check our own bias. So learn, reflect, act, assess. And I use this example. It's not a DEI related example, but it's a good example of how we can sometimes bypass the reflection as educators is that I remember doing a workshop, uh, our, a professional development with our staff years ago um, on a checking for understanding type of software. Mm-hmm. And um, the next day, uh, the kids' eyes were like spinning and we're like, what's, what's going on? And they're like, well, there's this new like program that teachers are having us do. And literally every single teacher you know, took this I, this program and had students doing it, right? And so it's like, we are great learners as educators and we want to get to action right away. Mm-hmm. And not realizing that we can have a negative impact on what we're doing. And when it relates to identity work, mm-hmm. um, when it relates to trying to address racism, sexism, homophobia, that we can do more damage if we go straight into action, as opposed mm-hmm. to saying, I just learned something uh, you know, I just learned, you know, this software, for example, how is it going to better impact my students? What are ways that I can make sure it's culturally responsive? Mm-hmm. Um, and then take that kind of action and then checking to make sure that it works. Um, and that's why this takes a long time. That's why you want to start with simple, small steps first, because people aren't going to understand why you're talking about bias and grading to what we were talking about earlier. Right. when our grading system has been the same grading system for a hundred plus years, right? And there's no evidence to suggest that it's it's actually has any impact on students, except it probably may have some negative impact on students. Right. Right. So like, but if we're going to start there when people are comfortable with this, you know, our grading as the norm, then you're going to lose people and you're probably not going to do it well because you haven't built that foundation. So start and kids aren't going to see that as beneficial, you know? So start with, like, how do we build connections with students? How do we make sure that they're feeling seen in the classroom? How do we make sure they feel empowered so that we can then get to topics such as, you know, our discipline policies or, you know, what are our values 
when we assess students? Is it to sort students or is it to see if they're actually learning, right? Like yep. those become much more powerful conversations if you've built that foundation. Yeah. And pulling students, like you said, in into it in a dynamic way, when we try something new, we are moving through an inquiry cycle. Are we actively connecting with the people that we're asking to engage in these ways, which are our students and saying, how did this work for you? What was your response to it? Do you have suggestions for how we might do this particular thing differently or better? And I think sometimes the the why of the work we do is not clear to students. We're not being super explicit about the value or the purpose. And then also just checking in with them about how did that go for you? And what what might your experience have been like that I couldn't have considered as the teacher or the leader in this scenario? Because they give such wonderful feedback that can then be kind of woven into iterations of whatever these policies and changes actually are. And to your other point, one of the things that I talk with teachers about all the time, because obviously we get into this work because we we want to light kids up, we want to inspire them, want to cultivate lifelong learners. And I think sometimes like we we make decisions that aren't super clear or we do what we did as kids or what we're familiar with. And we don't realize that if our what brought us into this profession are the kids and and really trying to do the best work for them, we also should be thinking about how do policies like grading, late work, et cetera, do they actually reinforce trust and mutual respect in these relationships we're trying to build with kids or do they erode them over time? Because your point about are some of these things that we've always, air quotes, always done, are they actually detrimental and kind of working against us if what we're really trying to do is connect with learners and build these relationships so that we can support them in really dynamic learning experiences. And I don't know that we are asking those questions. And, and I would say through from my experience, I think what you said is totally right, because the second and third questions are even harder, right? So mm -hmm. when we talk about grading, for example, our goal in our grade, grading work, you know, we know this is like five to 10 year work. Mm -hmm. Our goal to eliminate our bias in our grading. So, you know, one of the things that some folks have tried was that I'm going to um, eliminate uh, homework because uh, homework grades, because it's um, more of a compliance grade often and not a demonstration of learning. And so the kids mm -hmm. who have the time to do their homework, do their homework, they get a check, but it never really demonstrates that they, that they learned it. Right. So, right. okay, that's a good goal. Mm -hmm. But then what we learn is that, well, if you don't grade homework, then kids are most likely not going to do their homework, right? And because mm -hmm. that they the grade as the, the extrinsic value, uh, uh, you know, extrinsic motivation as the, as the reason. And so there are some really hard questions there to figure like, well, how do I get kids if I really think, you know, we can talk about whether homework matters or not, but, right. you know, there are, you know, I would say that there are times when work that kids are doing outside may have some value. And if that's the case and you want them to do it, well, how do you make sure that they do it? And the same thing with retakes. Like, how do we make sure the kids aren't you know, waiting to the last minute to the retake? There's so many hard questions that you can't just say, well, I'm going to eliminate bias and this is what I'm going to do. Like, there's actually some really hard work if you're going to do it well, which is, again, why you can't do, figure you can't figure this all out in a minute. Right. Or a year or even three years. It's that journey for sure. And a commitment to the time it takes to do things that are meaningful. And I, you know, 
there's a lot of interesting overlaps. Like your commitment to equity has definitely been something that I, I talk a lot about from an instructional design perspective, um, that focus on student-centered learning. And as pillars of my own work and engaging with teachers around this work all the time, I am very aware of the challenges of supporting teachers in making substantive change. And so I'm curious, like what has worked for you in terms of guiding, inspiring the teachers on your campus to really embrace what what are important but challenging shifts, right? In mindset, in sometimes their skill set. How do you make sure that you have teachers who are working toward the goals that you have kind of set as a school leader? So I think that is, uh, you know, a huge part of my job, um, which is to keep reminding us of why we're doing this work, right? So it's initially framing it. And as I said, I have 16 uh, administrators in our building. And so I spent the first couple of years really working with them mm -hmm. um, to help get uh, them on the same page uh, so uh, on why we're doing this work and to have that sense of why so that they can build that sense of buy-in throughout our, our building. So I think that my job keeps is to keep coming back to why we're doing it. I still recite, you know, the, the, the Confederate flag story. I tell several times a year, mm -hmm. the disproportionality we have in special education, even though we've narrowed that, I repeat, I repeat that story several times a year. You know, some of my framing tools, like my Venn diagrams that, you know, have become sort of, uh, I guess, famous uh, in our school is that, you know, they, they sort of remain of what are the structures for what, how we're doing this work that we want engagement, engagement, active engagement learning for students. We want um, uh, emotional safety for students, and we want to support students in a variety of ways when they're, when they're struggling. Um, and so those like parameters, you know, haven't shifted. It's just like the details of the, of the shifts are what, are what's changed over the last eight years. And I would say that when I hire, you know, this is something we talk a lot about the book. When I hire, those are the kinds of questions I, I now ask are really around our values around equity, our commitments around um, uh, active engaged learning for students. Um, and I'm really, you know, pressing in those areas of the knowledge base of, of the educators uh, in those, in those interviews. I would also say that, you know, a lot of our, the way in which we publicize ourselves as well mm -hmm. has attracted candidates who want to work in our school because of the clear values of our school. Mm -hmm. I would say that that's been a game changer because a lot of our, uh, you know, educator leaders now are people that we've hired over the last several years that, you know, came in here with uh, the vision of the, of the school. Right. It's like something they're also passionate about. That's wonderful. So I know in addition to the work you're doing on your campus and you've written a book and you're supporting larger, kind of the larger educational community in this work. I know I get your newsletter every week and I'm curious because I think in a conversation, I don't know if it was on Instagram or where we're chatting. I know that when you do work like this, you're you get pushback. Right. And I can relate. I definitely think as Anybody in this space who's pushing for any kind of change, pushback can be intense, but particularly given kind of the 
climate in which we are currently existing, that that has to be really challenging to be doing this important work and then face that kind of pushback or resistance or even kind of the nastier stuff that happens on social media. So I'm curious, like, what has been your response when you have to kind of manage some of that with folks that either you're trying to kind of lead in this work or just you're sharing online and you get that kind of pushback? Um, How do you handle that? It's no doubt doubt uh, really challenging um, and, and emotional. Mm-hmm. Um, I you know I I do feel like I have an amazing team and support here, and so I feel like that is 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 huge. When I do uh, workshops with uh, other schools and other districts, um, you know, the first thing I talk about is finding your why. Mm-hmm. And my why is a story about my daughter in kindergarten when she first identified that she had brown skin Mm -hmm. and that sense of pride that she had in the stories that she learned about what it's like to be a person with brown brown skin. And so I always say that my why is that I want every single kid to have that same sense of pride in herself Mm -hmm. as as she had on that day. And what we know is that that declines, right? And so uh, as kids get older, so what I, what I, for me, when the hard things happen, when the criticism happens, you know, when the nastiness, you know, cause you're right in this environment, it can get really, really nasty and personal mm-hmm. is that I come back to why am I doing this? And, you know, when I walk through my school and I see that we've made such progress um, and we can have really hard conversations as a school to often when we disagree, but we can really um, empathize and learn from each other and grow in our cultural understanding of each other. To me, that's, you know, that makes all the difference. And, um, you know, I think that that it goes beyond cultural understanding. It goes into like, how do we make sure that our LGBTQ community is supported? How do we make sure that our EL students are, um, are, are supported? Um, you know, how do we make sure people who are new to our community, like feel supported like that? just has completes the mind shift of our mm-hmm. yeah, and say so like I feel good because I know that our connectedness is much higher than it, than it than it was and that's attributed to the hard work of our of our school so and you know I like to work out and exercise and get all the stress out as well Oh my gosh. Yeah. Okay. Well, that brings, that brings me to my, uh, my last question for you, which is how I always end the show. And I like to joke that I I end with this question because I am constantly searching for a better balance in my own life and work, but are there strategies, um, you know, things that you do that you have found helpful in striving for that healthier work-life balance, especially doing work that can be so emotionally charged or draining or all those things and rewarding, obviously, but it's, it's a lot. So how do you manage all of that? What works for you? I don't know if I'm going to give you the best answer for this one. So (laughs) I, I, I love my job. I spend a lot of hours on my job and I love working with educators. So I go above and beyond. I think it's good for our school that I work with other schools. I speak to other schools. I speak to educators, um, you know, the larger educator uh, community. So, you know, I definitely make decisions that maybe some other people wouldn't make, mm-hmm. um, but it also gives me joy. And I think a question that I have to that I that I always ask is what is the work life balance that 
I want, that my family wants. Um, and, you know, I make sure that my family, that we are, that the time that we're together, that we are definitely a very moving family, a lot go happening. Mm-hmm. But when we're together, the time is, um, is valued and it's meaning it's meaningful time and so there may be times when we don't spend a whole lot of time together or maybe days we don't spend a whole lot of time together but that those that short periods of time are really important for us um and i also you know i make sure that you know the things that i want to do to take care of myself that i do it so whether it's meditation i practice yoga i like to exercise like those things to me are are important so you know, I carve out time. And then I also know that there's consequences to that. You know, I probably don't get as much sleep as I probably should. You and me uh, both. <laughs> uh, but, you know, I, but I also am, I'm happy, you know, I'm happy about uh, the work that I do. I find, uh, I find a lot of meaning in it. And, you know, I remember a couple of years ago, my daughter had one of those moments that I'll never forget mm-hmm. and said, uh, she said, you're my role model Aww. and I'll never like, she's 13 now. So she doesn't say things like that to me that are as positive, but, uh, I hold on to those kind of, you know, those kind of things to know that like, we're, as a family, we're doing okay. And like, I'm clearly yeah. being my authentic self for them. That's wonderful. No, I think that's great advice. I think so often in the day to day, just crazy that is being a family. Sometimes it's easy to lose sight of just really that presence in those moments together and making the conversations happen and just like finding like I have to remind myself just enjoy this moment. Don't think about all the things you got to do tomorrow or later or whatever. It's like, just be here because my daughter's like a year and a half from leaving and like going out into the world. And I just have so many moments where I think in a year and a half, are you going to regret not being more present in a particular moment or being home when she's around? It's just, I think that's actually great advice. So I want to thank you so much for spending time with me talking about your work. It's always fascinating getting to kind of hear the leader perspective, a school leader perspective. So I really appreciate your time. I had a lot of fun. Thanks so much. Really appreciate it. I always appreciate hearing from folks who are so incredibly passionate about their work. And I think the aspect of this conversation with Henry that really stands out to me is just how his experience as a student has led to this passionate work that's focused on diversity and equity and inclusion and his honest account of how challenging that can be at times working within a community and trying to address some of these really difficult challenges and issues. And his excitement and passion for the work he does is infectious. So thrilled to have that opportunity to chat with him about his career and what he's working on today and his new book. So if you have any questions, any comments you want to reach out, you can find me on Twitter, X, or Instagram. If you want to find me on X, it's at Catlin underscore Tucker on Instagram at Catlin Tucker. Or you can always find me on my website, Catlin Tucker. Thank you for joining me for this episode of The Balance. 